All right, so uh, last time we were looking at uh, Acts chapter 17, and we took a detour through 1 Thessalonians. So tonight I think we'll start in 2 Thessalonians and go through that real quick. But uh, last time we were looking at Paul uh, ministering to the Thessalonians, and uh, he got taken away right away. The persecution broke out, and they captured this guy named Jason who just got saved, and he had to pay like a bail money in order to get out again. And so Paul had these things he wanted to tell them that he didn't have a chance to tell them uh, that, that first time when he was with them there. So this is a shorter letter than the one we looked at last week, and he's going to kind of repeat a lot of the same things again. And uh, so if you get tired of hearing the same thing again, just know that 80% of ministry I heard is actually just reminding people what they already heard before. So I guess Paul knew that too, and so he says a lot of the same things he said in his first letter, but they're important things that we need to remember. So we'll start with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 here, and I'll go ahead and open in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for this uh, fellowship of believers, Lord God. I pray that you would open our eyes to your word, Lord, and our hearts, Lord God. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you, our love for you, and our faith in you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you'd uh, just speak to us now, Lord God, and work on our hearts. In your name I pray, amen. So it starts by saying, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. And so the faith of the Thessalonians was still growing exceedingly, and they still loved one another. And this was prayer's wish for them in the first letter he wrote them. And uh, we talked about the process of sanctification last week. And uh, our whole Christian life is a process of becoming more like Christ. We continually grow in him. And we won't be perfect like him until we get to heaven. So we still have this flesh to contend with. But uh, Paul's rejoicing that they are still growing and that he's still seeing progress in them. And so as we walk with God, our faith in him should grow as well as our love for others. You notice that they grow, grew in their love too. On to verse 4 it says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. And so Paul covered their work of faith, labor and love, and patient hope again. Those were things he commended them for in the first epistle there. And... Uh, if you also remember, a thing you mentioned was that we are appointed to affliction. And so we see that they're still going through more trials here. He says that God's righteous even though we go through these tribulations and persecutions. God doesn't allow us to go through those things for his entertainment or anything. He has a purpose and a plan. And he's righteous in his judgment of what trials uh, we'll make it through. So he, can, he knows us. He knows uh, what we can survive and what we can't. He's not going to give us more than we can bear. In verse 5 there it said, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. And we know that enduring trials isn't what makes us worthy of heaven. It's not like uh, that's the price we have to pay. It's God's grace that makes us worthy of heaven. And so the worthiness of heaven is just revealed when God gives us the grace to make it through the trials. 
And so he does it like that so that all glory goes to him and we can't boast in it. So the world sees uh, that we are uh, so sure of the promises of God and of our eternal salvation that we can rejoice in the midst of trials. And the world will see that when we go through those trials. And uh, Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And seeing the genuineness of our faith is a powerful witness to them. And so uh, there's actually a lot of testimonies of prison guards who were watching these Christians that were being persecuted and keeping guard over them. And they actually came to know Christ and be saved because of the way the Christians endured the persecution they had. They had the right heart and attitude about it and they were rejoicing in it. And it really makes a powerful witness to those on the outside. So Paul uh, encourages them in that again, that they're uh, enduring the persecutions with a good heart. In verse 6 it says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in the day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony of you was believed. And so Paul encourages them again by reminding them that uh, God is righteous and he will punish those who persecute them. Uh, but he'll give us rest. And so that's a comfort to them. When Jesus returns, he'll simultaneously be rewarding his saints and punishing his enemies. And it's easy to endure our trials when we realize that our affliction is only temporary, but their punishment is going to be eternal. And uh, that very thought has allowed people who are being persecuted to be a gracious witness to those who persecute them. Verse 11 goes on to say, uh, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as is from us, as though the day of the Lord had come already. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so... Uh, it looks, uh, it looks like there were false teachers that were troubling the Thessalonians and trying to get them to think that they missed the return of Christ, that Jesus already returned, and that's why they're going through these tribulations maybe. But uh, he tells them here about Christ's return, and he mentioned it also in the last epistle too. That's another thing he's reminding them of. But he goes to further clarify it here, and he tells them that Christ won't return to set up his kingdom until after the falling away and the son of perdition is revealed. And that son of perdition means one destined for destruction. 
And there's been a lot of antichrists throughout history, a lot of people who claim to be Jesus, but really they weren't, and they were demonic in their motives. But uh, he's talking about this, like the antichrist that's going to come at the end times there. And uh, you notice, like he called him the man of sin, the son of perdition. And it's interesting, it seems like every time he mentions this antichrist, Paul also mentions that he's doomed for destruction, and that's kind of a thing that gives you hope, too, to realize that the enemy's already defeated. In verse 5, it goes on, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So another thing that will happen before all this is that a restraining power will be removed. And it looks like the only thing that this could be is the Holy Spirit. And so it would make sense that if the church is uh, raptured, then uh, it would make sense that that's the point where the Spirit would stop restraining such lawlessness. And then that's when the lawless one will be revealed. And uh, notice that Paul doesn't just say the lawless one, but the lawless one whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So there again, he, every time he mentions this Antichrist, he also mentions that he's doomed for destruction. And uh, it shows us that God's in control and it's all part of his plan. And a lot of people are afraid to look at the return of Christ in the end times because they're afraid of the scary things that are mentioned there. But uh, you just have to remember that if you're a true believer in Christ, you don't have to worry and that God's always on the throne. So on to verse 9 now it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so there are a few things to look at closely here in these verses. And uh, verse 9 kind of makes it sound like the devil has power, but he only has the power that God allows him to have. It's... um a fact that he's subject to God. If we look at Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 12, we see an example of this. So Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 12 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and, have, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face." And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
And so we see there that uh, Satan has to give an account to God and he needs his permission from God before he can do anything to Job. And even then, God still tells him the boundaries and the limits of how far he can go. And so verse 9 mentioned, uh, it says, To the coming of the lawless one and according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And it mentions those lying wonders. And uh, there's stories of uh, witch doctors healing people and new age healings that are really demonic when you look at them. And they look like miracles, but they're actually lies. A lot of times those same people claim that they're only a temporary healing or else they come with a lot of fear and paranoia and it's just a rip off of the healing that God offers. And Jesus defeated Satan positionally on the cross and he'll defeat him practically when we see the end of Revelation. And so uh, Satan's doom is sealed like uh, Paul mentioned twice already. And uh, Paul summarizes, summarizes it when he uh, ends the book his letter to the Romans with an encouraging promise. Romans uh, 16 verse 20 says, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That's a cool promise to hold on to. And another thing to notice is that it almost sounds like God wants to punish these people who are deceived. But remember what 2 Peter 3.9 says. We'll turn there real quick. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so it shows us God's heart there. He doesn't uh, want people to perish. He wants them to repent. He gives them time for that. But uh, eventually uh, he has to give judgment if he's a righteous God. And so uh, it almost sounds like God, it says that uh, in verse 12, or verse 11 here, it says, For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And it almost sounds like God wants them to be deceived, but that's not what's happening here. It's the devil's job to deceive people. God's uh, only helping them to believe the lie that they chose. It's only after they choose to believe the lie that... Uh, he sends them these delusions. And so they have an opportunity to be saved and accept the truth, but they didn't want it. And Romans chapter 1 talks about that in more detail, kind of uh, Paul describes that process of uh, how they choose to, to believe a lie instead, and then they just become more and more deceived as they go. But God wants everyone to repent. And you remember that John 3.16 uh, says how much God loved the world and uh He's a gentleman. He's not going to force anyone to spend eternity with him if that's not what they want. And a love that's forced is not love at all. So verse 13, Paul goes on here and he says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. And so there's so many encouraging things in these verses here. Uh, it says that God has called us to obtain his glory. God loves us. 
It's important that we remember that. He's uh, given us everlasting consolation and good hope. And when the worries of this world start to surround you, just remind yourself that a lot of the things you worry about won't matter in light of eternity. And God wants to establish us and comfort us. He gives us that everlasting consolation. On to chapter 3 now it says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. And so Paul is asking the Thessalonians to be praying for him. You know, he always talks about how much he prays for them in these two epistles. But now he's asking them to pray for him as well. And if you notice, his desire was that the gospel would run swiftly and that uh, they'd be delivered from evil men so that they could keep on sharing the good news. And it's good for us to pray for one another. It can be hard to find the time to pray, but it's such an important weapon that God has given us. I think there's that verse in 2 Corinthians. I didn't write it down. Let's see, I think it's like 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, but it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So the weapons God gives us, like prayer, they're not weak they're the, the tools we need for the job you know it says that they're uh, mighty for pulling down strongholds and if you ever like picture those strongholds they had back then you know that'd be a big feat to do to try and pull down a big old wall but that's the power of prayer that God's given us so it's good that we find that time to pray for one another he also says that he's not worried about these believers in a manner of speaking because the Lord is faithful. He doesn't have confidence in the people, but he has confidence that the Lord will take care of them. And uh, so it's important for us to pray for one another, but we also need to know that we can't change each other. But God is faithful to establish and guard us from the evil one. And, you know, if I was Paul, I would have been worried about the Thessalonians. It's like, oh, no, I got taken away from them. I didn't get to instruct them in all the things I wanted to. What if... Uh, these false teachers come along like they were doing? What if they get tricked by that? But Paul had confidence in God. On to verse 6 it says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So Paul was leading the Thessalonians by example, and that's how Jesus taught his disciples too. You remember, he washed their feet even at the last supper that they had together. Paul didn't want anything from them free of charge because he didn't want to be a burden to them. And he says in Galatians uh, 6.2, he says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
So it's Christ-like to bear each other's burdens, and it's worldly and fleshly to add to their burdens. In verse 10 he says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So Paul was being an example to them. I guess there were some people who were being lazy, or else they thought that they were exempt from work and that uh, they should just get uh, food for free. Maybe they were like a politician or something. But Paul was being an example to them because even though he was an apostle, he was still working with his own hands to provide for himself. And it's interesting because John Smith used this verse in uh, the early colonial times in the colony in Virginia to save them from starvation. There was a lot of uh, like plantation owners, owners that came from uh, Europe and they were thinking that they should be exempt from the work and they'd want to eat the food though. And John Smith used this verse and said, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that was really what they needed to hear in that colony to get it to survive. So on to verse 11 it says, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. And so again, this wasn't talking about those who couldn't find work or were disabled, but those who were lazy or thought that they should be exempt. He's telling them they should, get a, they should work for their own food. And instead of being busybodies, they should uh, be quiet and eat their own bread. On to verse 13, he says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says something very similar to this. It's also from Paul, but he kind of uh, talks even more about it here. In Galatians 6, verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So he said that same line in there, let us not grow weary while doing good. But he kind of explains more that the good things that you do, the good work you're doing, it's going to reap a harvest. It's not in vain. And so he's saying, just keep working for that harvest. Don't give up. In verse 14, it goes on. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so when you have to correct someone, do it in love. If someone's a Christian brother or sister, then treat them like it. Don't treat them like an enemy, you know. And there are those people out there, they'll, they're kind of looking for people to correct. And when they see you fall, they'll kind of treat you like an enemy and Maybe they'll yell at you or con condemn you, but uh, God doesn't want us to be condemned. He wants us to be convicted and repent if we do something wrong, and he wants to restore us. It's uh, his heart of love there. In verse 16, it says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always and every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So he finishes his second letter to
to the Thessalonians who were dear to him, uh, who he wasn't able to spend much time with. And now we'll go back to our uh, story of Acts in chapter 17. And uh, the way Paul ended that letter was he said he was writing it, writing the, his own name at the end by his uh, own hand. And that was probably important because maybe the false teachers who were troubling them were saying, oh, look at this letter from Paul I have or something. But Paul's saying, this, this time you can know it's from me. And that's why he signed his name at the end. So back at Acts chapter 17, uh, after he got kicked out of Thessalonica, his uh, friends Timothy and Silas were still there. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 10 here. It says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So finally, Paul has a fair-minded audience. They actually receive the word readily. They uh, check the scriptures for themselves to see if it was true what he was saying. And apparently it was because they uh, believed and uh, were saved. And that's what we should all be doing too. You know, we should be checking the scriptures for ourselves. Especially do it on Sunday nights because I know I make a lot of mistakes and uh, mispronounce things and all. So in verse 13 he goes on, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. Both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So these are serious Jews here. They're serious about persecuting Paul. They chased him to Berea and drove him out of there too. If only they were as serious about seeking God as they were about pursuing Paul, then they might find some peace in their lives. Uh... It's not, it looks like in your map in the back of the Bible, it looks like Thessalonica and Berea are pretty close to each other. Maybe they were only like 10 or 15 miles apart. But uh, Paul had to get out of there fast and he left Timothy and Silas there, but he told them to come and meet him in Athens. So in verse 16 it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw the city was given over to idols. And so seeing the state of the city of Athens' idolatry provoked Paul's spirit. And it should provoke us to see the lost people of this world too. We need to guard our hearts against callousness uh, by asking God to give us his heart for people. It can be kind of easy, you know, to just get used to the world around us and just kind of get laid back and lazy, you know. But we should still be provoked when we see people in bondage and in deception Verse 17, it says, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus in the resurrection. So it shows you how... uh, 
provoked Paul was here. He wasn't just uh, talking in the synagogues, you know, he'd talk with the Gentile worshipers who were right outside the synagogue who weren't allowed in. And he didn't stop there either. Then he went to the marketplace and just talked to whoever he could run into. And it mentions these philosophers here. The Epicureans believed in happiness and pleasure. And that's what they were after. They tried to attain peace and love. And uh, they didn't believe that the gods got involved with human affairs. And the Stoics believed that there was purpose in the universe, but that they had to work for it themselves. So Paul got to know his audience, uh, and his heart must have gone out to them, because what these people were really looking for, whether they realized it or not, is a relationship with their creator. And that's where they'll find their peace and love, their joy and contentment, and true purpose from the Father reaching out to them. In verse 19 it says, uh, they were interested in what he was saying, and they said they took him and brought him to the... uh, Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So it sounds like the perfect audience for Paul, people who did nothing but search for profound things and new things. And uh, the Areopagus they invited Paul to was sort of like a, an amphitheater where they would have their council meetings and stuff. So it was like a perfect setup for Paul. It sounds like he's got a ready audience and a good stage. So let's see what happens in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So Paul had the perfect opening for these people here. They had so many idols and false gods that they worshipped that they even had an empty altar dedicated to the unknown God in case they missed one. And Paul gets to tell them that uh, the God they weren't really, they were really searching for, the true and living God, that's who he's going to tell them about. And he describes to them that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They believed they needed like a God to please for their good crops, and then they needed to uh, worship another God in order to have good weather, and they had all these different gods for their different things they needed. But Paul's going to describe to them that the true and living God is the only one. He's in charge of everything. So on to verse 24 now it says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. So Paul tells them that God is a creator and sustainer of everything and that he needs nothing that we have to offer. So they would have to make sacrifices to appease their gods, but the true and living God doesn't need anything from us. He reaches out to us because he loves us. And... uh, Something that I'm interested, I was interested in seeing here is that 
he mentions that God brought all the nations from one man, and he was talking about Adam there. And I think that uh, evolutionists can kind of be racist, because if there's different races, then if it's all because of evolution, then surely one race must be evolved more than the next. And uh, that's kind of what Hitler's notion was when he tried to wipe out the Jewish race. He thought that they were an inferior race. But if you believe what the Bible says, then you know that there aren't any superior or inferior races. We all came from dust, and we're all going to return to dust. Death is the great equalizer. And when you come to Christ, and you have brothers and sisters in Christ, then it's, uh, there's even more communion in that. But Paul goes on here in verse 26, And he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So God put man on the earth, and he determines man's times and dwellings. And it says that the reason is so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him. And uh, it kind of gives you that visual picture of like a, a blind man waving his arms trying to find a certain thing. Or it's kind of like that game Marco Polo, you know, you close your eyes and say, Marco, and you try to find the person saying Polo. That's what Paul's talking about here. He said that... Uh, God's kind of calling out to them so that they can find him by, even though they're blind. And so you could say then that the meaning of life is to find God, who Paul says is not far from each one of us. God is so accessible. And as we've been uh, seeing through the whole book of Acts, if someone is seeking God, then God will reveal himself to them. And so the meaning of life is to find God. And once you have found God, it, has, it adds all kinds of meaning to your life. Verse 28 goes on, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So Paul relates to them again, uh, he quotes their own poet to them, but he also shows them their uh, sh own shortcomings of their beliefs there. He's saying that God's not gold or silver or stone. You can't make these statues to worship God. He's bigger than that. In verse 30, he continues, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul tells his uh, audience about the judgment day of Christ that we looked at real quick in 2 Thessalonians earlier. And he mentions that the resurrection of Christ is the proof that he'll return. Verse 32 goes on, And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and, being, and believed among them Dionysius and uh, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so this is one of the most detailed of Saul's sermons in the book of Acts here that we looked at. But it looks like the least amount of reaction from the audience. 
And so even though Paul was thorough and logical and heartfelt, yes, he can't make these people believe. And let's look at Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 7 to 9. Ezekiel 33, 7 to 9. It says, So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, he does not turn and does not turn from his way. He shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So there, uh, God was telling Ezekiel that it's his job to warn the people. And if he didn't warn the people, then uh, he said that it's like their blood's on your hands. And that's kind of the way things were for watchmen back then, you know. If they didn't do their job, then they would kind of be guilty. And that doesn't apply 100% to us, though. But uh, it's uh, good that we realize, though, that we are God's messengers, though. We have a message to give to people. But we can't bring anyone to salvation. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict them. And it's their choice to accept Christ or reject him. But we should warn them of the destruction they're headed for. And... uh, I don't think it's like if we don't if we don't witness some to someone that God's called us to witness to. I don't think they're going to hell because of that. I think God will send other witnesses their way. And uh, there was a pastor at the Bible college who shared a story uh, of his own. He said that he was kind of abroad on a trip, and he felt God telling him to go witness to someone that he ran into while he was traveling, and he almost didn't. You know, he had a lot of excuses of why he didn't want to. But he finally did share the gospel with them. And I think they got saved, if I remember right. But uh, afterwards, the interesting thing is that another person who was watching him the whole time came up to him and said uh, that he was a Christian too and that God was telling him to come witness to this guy. But right when he was about to, he saw the first guy witness to him. And so I think that kind of goes to show that uh, if we don't witness to someone, God will still send other witnesses to them. But... This pastor was really glad that he didn't miss out on the blessing of being able to share the gospel with them. You know, he was really encouraged himself seeing someone come to salvation like that. And he was encouraged by the second guy, too, telling him that he was going to witness to him if he didn't. And so it's not, it doesn't apply to us 100% from Ezekiel. I don't think God's going to hold it against us if we don't witness to someone, but we'll miss out on the blessing, though. So on to chapter 18 now. So even though Paul had this great message and the perfect audience and the perfect setting, it sounds like not many people got saved. But it's okay because he gave them a fair warning of the judgment that was coming. And he shared with them how much God loves them. So in chapter 18 it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, so he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So Paul runs into a couple that he has a lot in common with. They had the same profession. They were both both in Corinth because they got kicked out of the last place they were in. And uh, the thing they have the most in common with is that they're Christians, we're going to find out. So he finds a good couple to hang out with here. 
On to verse uh, 4 it says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So it seems like uh, Timothy and Silas were uh, an encouragement to Saul. It said when he saw them that uh, the Spirit compelled him to preach Christ. And uh, Paul says to them when they reject Jesus, uh, what he says to them there kind of goes along with that verse we looked at in Ezekiel. He said, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. And uh, he gave them that fair warning and he said, I'm going to the Gentiles now. In verse 7 it says, And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So I laugh every time I read this because Paul makes a big scene and tells the Jews, That's it, I'm going. But he only goes next, right next door. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't make it very far. That's how close the Gentiles were, I guess. But it kind of reminds you of those stories of kids who run away from home, but they only make it to the garage or something like that. <laughs> So uh, it's going to work out good, though, because it's going to make the Jews jealous to see Paul ministering right next door to them here. In verse 8, it says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So after Paul goes next door, then the ruler of the synagogue was saved, and even more people believed and were baptized. And so God's timing is kind of crazy sometimes. You know, uh, it wasn't until he went next door that the guy repented. In verse 9 it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So Paul had an encouraging vision from God telling him not to worry because he would protect him. And that had to be a comfort to Paul to have a break from the persecution we know that there's a lot more he's going to have to endure, and he already endured a lot. <clears throat> and uh, while he's in Corinthians here, this is when he writes the epistles to the Thessalonians. He has that time here. And uh, it's funny. Oh, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So uh, in verse 11 it says, And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So it's kind of funny that Paul got to spend a whole year and a half here in Corinth. But uh, the letters he writes to the Corinthians are like his longest epistles we have record of. So even though he was able to spend so much time with them, he had to tell them a lot more to encourage them and correct them and teach them. In verse 12 it says, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should hear with you, bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. So it's kind of funny, uh, Paul's kind of used to this, and his normal thing is 
that uh, he's ready to share the gospel with the court, but he, right when he's about to open his mouth, the judge interrupts and says, uh, I don't want to listen to this. This is some religious matter, and he kicks him out of his court. But it's just like God told him. He said, no one will attack you to hurt you. So God keeps his promise to him here. And then we get to see what they do when their scheme fails here in verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So I guess they needed a new ruler of the synagogue after the last one became a believer. So they got a whole new guy here, Sosthenes. And uh, instead of Paul being beat up, the Greeks beat up the synagogue ruler right in front of the judge. So apparently they didn't like the Jews and they were aggravated that they bothered the judge with a religious matter. So it got turned around on them. In verse 18 it goes on, So Paul still remained a good while, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sencrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen all the disciples. So Paul isn't able to stay in Ephesus for long, but he does come uh, back to them on his third missionary journey. Uh, if you look at the map in the back, he kind of follows the same path he went last time. But then he breaks off and cuts straight across to Ephesus there to keep his promise to them. So after he leaves Ephesus, he goes up to Jerusalem for the feast there. And he gets to encourage the church in Jerusalem. And then he goes back to Antioch. That's kind of like his home base there that him and Barnabas uh, stayed at for a long time. And he goes right into his third missionary journey and starts going through Galatia and Phrygia. So uh, in verse 24 it says... Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So we get to see the ministry of Apollos start here. He started off kind of how Paul started off. He had that zeal for God, but he didn't have the knowledge and uh he was on fire for God, but he missed the life of Christ somehow. He must have been uh, away from Jerusalem at that time that Christ was there those three years. And so he heard, the, he heard about the baptism of John, and he was preaching that, but he never heard that Jesus had come and lived and died and was buried and rose again. And so uh, we see uh, how it was God's plan for Priscilla and Aquila to stay there in Ephesus, you know. They might have, I don't know how they felt about that. I don't know if they wished they would have kept going with Paul or if they uh, 
just felt it was God's plan for them to stay there. But after they stayed there, though, they were able to come alongside of Apollos and explain things further to him. And he could have ended up uh, confusing a lot of people, you know, if he was going to the same place as Paul was, but then just preaching about John the Baptist, it would have kind of been like a step backwards. But uh, after he came to a full knowledge, though, it says he was such a great help to the other churches, and it said he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly. And he turns out to be a good evangelist here. And uh, Paul talks about him in his epistles later, you know, and mentions how good of an evangelist he was. And so Priscilla and Aquila ended up doing what Paul told the Thessalonians to do. He said, don't count them an enemy, but encourage them as a brother. And that's what they did here. They didn't condemn Apollos and say, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about or something like that. They came alongside of him and explained it to him. And he ended up being such a great brother to them in Christ. And they even uh, sent him on to the next place with like a letter of recommendation saying, uh, accept this man. And uh, they did, they received him and he was a great help to them. So we see the, what Paul said to do in Thessalonians in action there. So we covered a lot of ground tonight, but uh, we uh, saw God's plan through all this. We saw that God was in control. We saw uh, his love for people and his plans for people. And it's, uh, hopefully it was encouraging to you as it was to me. I'll go ahead and end in prayer and then we'll have uh, another time of worship here. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your plans for us, Lord. I pray that you'd go with us this week, Lord, that you'd help us through the trials, Lord, and the afflictions that we're appointed to, Lord God. Help us to keep our eyes on you and to be looking for your coming, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you'd uh, just help our hearts to stay focused on you, Lord God, and help us not to get sidetracked, Lord, with the things of the world. And I just uh, pray for this time of worship now, Lord, that you'd be the focus, and that all glory and honor and power would be to your name. In your name I pray. Amen.